With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Carol Katzbayer, is with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Carol, how are you doing this evening? Hello, Ken. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Tell me, what is Families for Sensible Drug Policy? Okay, Families for Sensible Drug Policy, or FSDP as we like to call it, is an international coalition of families uh, that includes treatment professionals and organizations dedicated to implementing innovative public health initiatives uh, with the goal of reducing the harmful consequences of drug policy for our families. Okay, um, and how did you get involved with this? What made you decide to want to start this organization? Are you a sole founder? Do you have co-founders? How did it get going? Well, you may have heard of Barry Lesson. Uh, he is my co-founder. And about six months ago, uh, we were running in parallel universes uh, with the advocacy, and we connected through some of the other groups that have been doing this great work, and we just really clicked uh, in terms of our vision uh, to help the families. Uh, my background is in healthcare, and I have been involved in community outreach with the family business, which was residential healthcare. And I knew then that a lot of work needed to be done for the mentally ill and the substance-using or abusing population. And my family uh, was very much involved in a lot of different initiatives to help that cause. So it, it just was kind of a natural segue for me. And I grew up to uh, really embrace the idea of, of supporting physicians and healthcare practices because I realized that the patient experience really centered around what they did or didn't do. And that kind of uh, drove me to a space where I started looking around and realized that many experiences were more about profit and less about the patient. And in so far as my own family, when my own children became impacted by opioid addiction, I saw firsthand how the children were funneled, you know, from what we now know is called the school to prison pipeline. And I saw many, many examples of uh practices that did not seem very sensible to me. And I got involved in the advocacy and I met a lot of wonderful people as a consequence who also had similar ideas. And it's it's I'm overjoyed to be here. I really do feel that the families have been through um, a tremendous 
hardship that has left them, you know, emotionally, financially, spiritually bankrupt in many cases, and they really do deserve uh, support, and drug policy reform is a great place to begin uh, so that we can empower our families and uh, restore health and, and save lives. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the specific uh, drug policies and the reforms that you might propose for them. Let's talk about cannabis first. What about cannabis? Well, you know, we really do look to the Portugal model as an exemplary kind of a, a way that a country can embrace citizens and, you know, treat their population with the kind of respect of being able to allow them, you know, choices. So, for example, you know, the idea of, of criminalizing cannabis use has taken us from a space in 2006 where we had about 300,000 people incarcerated to uh, now in 2015, we have more than 2.5 million, uh, many of whom are in prison for nonviolent drug use or uh, abuse um, issues. And, you know, it, it, it really is very telling of, of a trend that we'd like to see um, circumvented and we'd like to try some other more sensible kind of uh, policy and uh, health care initiatives that actually work seamlessly together in tandem, you know, to support one another and to support people. Mm-hmm. Well, I've looked a little at the Portugal model, and of course it's an excellent model, and I also looked at the treatment side there, and they're you know, very big on evidence-based treatment. They do lots and lots of methadone and things like that, and they don't have uh, these luxury rehabs that cost you $60,000 <laughs> a month, and all this 12-step uh, ask God to cure your disease stuff is kind of... Uh, no, you know, it's not uh, emphasized at all. So it seems like they, you know, it's really important to have good, high-quality, evidence-based treatment, and we don't really have a lot of that in the U.S. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Ken. I mean, in, in terms of my family, we could write the Zagat book on rehab, and, you know, what I saw was a lot of one-size-fits-all traditional treatment that actually, you know, brought uh, adolescents in from school who very well may have been experimenting uh, socially and may not have had a, a problem that would be defined as uh, a substance abuser. However, you know, they were taken uh, into various programs uh, as a consequence of being drug tested and they were coerced and, and brainwashed uh, and forced to call themselves addicts, and uh, as a consequence, they were actually removed from their peers, from their community, from, from the soccer fields, from, you know, cheerleading practice, from dance class, and, and their lives were interrupted, and their self-esteem, you know, was targeted, and the families, primarily the mothers, uh, who were also, you know, kind of thrown under the bus and called enabler and codependent, uh, really lost all power and, and became the primary focus for any past, present, or future 
digression and everything centered, you know, around the drug use. And we were told to work a program, and they were also told to work a program. And the family was divided, and things got worse. And, uh, you know, the interventionists, the rehabs, uh, you know, that industry uh, kind of did, you know, the, uh, a very well rehearsed um high level of marketing uh targeted to families you know ba- basically on fear based techniques and you know we were very fearful you know it, it's our children's lives at stake so we would do anything we would pay 20,000 30,000 40,000 second mortgage our our homes um you know whatever it took the only problem was it didn't work and not only mm-hmm. didn't it work, but there were actually more harms created as a consequence. And we watched our children um, actually decompensate and uh, some, uh, unfortunately, have been lost. Others have uh, secondary conditions, uh, records, felonies, uh, recycling through through courts and rehabs and uh, getting nowhere as far as health and well-being. And so I think very much the idea of evidence-based, you know, individualized psychotherapy and uh, really taking a look at screenings um, for co-occurring disorder to have uh, physicians, pediatricians, you know, have these discussions during well visits and actually empower the families to begin a dialogue that begins with, you know, don't panic and 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 let's discuss and let's see what's so. And so I I think it's very very important, you know, to really take a look at. Uh, you know, I, I feel very positive now that the case for harm reduction has been made because if traditional treatment was effective, we wouldn't have the scenario that we do now. You know, that's going on that has everybody in a panic. We today just uh, spoke to our representative, our harm reduction representative in Indiana, uh, Kimberly Buck, who will be working with the Harm Reduction Coalition and doing some great things there uh, and as far as getting people, you know, plugged in to services. And, you know, I think we can really see that, that's an indicator, you know, that we really do need to do some some different things. So it's it's really a great pleasure for me, you know, to be looking forward and to be uh, embraced by people like yourselves and, of course, Barry Lesson and Andrew Tatarski and the folks from DPA and uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, uh, Bob Myers, Dr. Robert Zweibel, you know, all of all of these people, and and there are more. I'm sure I'll be naming them throughout the the conversation. That I I just like to tell the families that the cavalry is here. Mhm, mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's there's one huge lie that has been driving our drug treatment industry, the prison industry, the whole damn thing is this lie that addiction is a progressive disease that always ends in death unless it's treated or unless it's unrested by a 12-step program. (laughs) And anyone who's done research in the field knows, if you're familiar with the research, you know that uh, the normal outcome of addiction, almost everyone 
overcomes addiction, whether they get treatment or not. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing is to keep people alive because if people live long enough, they'll kick their addiction on their own, whether you give them treatment or not. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's a lot of research now that speaks to maturing out uh, as as really a very reasonable and sound expectation. And I remember not too long ago listening to Dr. Carl Hart uh, deliver a, a wonderful presentation, and uh, you know, he he basically said that that for him the big concern was to take children out of their balance. So if they're doing well in school, if they have uh, relationships, and if they they may play a sport or if they have a hobby, you know, to interrupt them is it actually can can do more harm. And I think this is what. This is what we've seen and experienced, and and not only that, but it it really micromanages our our adolescents and and our young adults and takes away their learning curve, their ability to process and to make up their own mind about you know I, I think I'm getting too old for this. I need a job or I want to go to school, so this isn't going to be the right thing to do. You know we we are making decisions for them, and then by criminalizing drug use, uh, it's actually taking opportunities for the future where they could have, you know, rebounded and just said, okay, it's it's time to grow up and it's time to do things a little differently. Uh, it, it's exponentially, you know, decreasing all opportunities for that because of the harm that's been done to the family unit as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another thing that's going on um NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and the DEA, and Michael Botticelli, the drug czar, the Office on Drug Control, National Office on Drug Control, they all take the same stance that all non-medical drug use is drug abuse, Mm. which is quite opposed to what the uh, APA says in the DSM, the American Psychiatric Association says most drug abuse most drug use is not drug abuse it's only a small percentage uh SAMHSA which is also a government agency the substance abuse and mental health administration uh tells us they do huge surveys they tell us you know about 20% of drug use is actually abuse or dependence and mm-hmm. 80% of drug users are recreational users. Not only are they recreational users, they are always recreational users. They don't progress to abuse mm-hmm. or dependence. So we really need to rec- recognize that most people that use drugs, they're not addicted. They don't have substance abuse. They don't have substance dependence. They're enjoying what they're doing. They're using responsibly. And what are you going to do to these people? Do you give them jail or treatment for doing something that's not a disease and it's not harmful? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again, that's a great point. And, you know, we wouldn't treat someone who was struggling with uh, diabetes and uh, maybe had it under control and they were on medication alone and then holiday time came and there were lot of uh, sumptuous desserts and pie, and, and then suddenly there was insulin. I mean, can you imagine, okay, we're going to sanction this person criminally now because they chose to, you know, use certain foods that they knew they would, you know, condition would worsen from. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a ridiculous way to treat people, and, you know, people are not perfect, 
and they're going to do certain things recreationally and make choices that maybe uh, are unique to them and balance their lives in, in a way that creates uh, a world that is is balanced for them and, and they can access the freedoms and enjoy life the way they want to. I mean, I, you know, it's it's not okay to uh, tell people what they can and can't do in the privacy of their own homes when they're not hurting anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a lot like the case with the homosexuality in the 1950s where there was a big argument, is this a disease or is it a crime? Do we put people in treatment for it or do we put them in prison for it? And now today we say, no, that's crazy. It's Mm -hmm. just, that's what people want to do. Leave them alone. Give them their right to be happy. You know, you don't need to put people in prison for something or prison or treatment for something that's neither a disease nor a crime. And I think that's the same with drug use. You did for most people, there's no dependence. It's just a recreation. It's just a pleasure. There's no reason to give them prison or treatment. Just leave them alone and give them their right to use their drug. Well, and, and you know, in the case where people are sanctioned criminally, you know, the expectation is to see recidivism. So, you know, to that extent, the argument doesn't work to actually help people. Crime spikes up, secondary disease, overdose. Uh, you know, people who truly are addicted, you know, are are increasing to the point where we now have to, you know, get on, into communities and, you know, talk about needle exchange programs. And, you know, there is a segment of the population that is in very real danger um, as a consequence of, of what's going on. And perhaps if it wasn't criminalized, uh, people would seek care. You know, uh, primarily there's a lot going on now with young mothers who, you know, have substance use issues and uh, they don't want to go for care because they're going to be reported. Their children could be taken away from them. And, you know, if we had an environment where uh, women were accustomed to going to the doctor and, and letting their primary care physician know that they have an issue and and building that trust and, and having those relationships, more people would get well, families would be restored. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with you completely. You know, there are people who have recreational desires to use drugs, and if they're not hurting anyone, you know, why shouldn't they? And And in the case where people need care, you know, why should they not be entitled to a chance at life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> one of the best models of treatment that we've seen is in Switzerland, uh, several other places in Europe, Belgium, they have heroin maintenance as well as methadone maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're not succeeding at other treatments, you can just get your heroin by prescription. You take it under supervision. Nobody dies of overdoses. Mm-hmm. You know, they all leave the clinic safely, uh, and crime just about disappears. Uh, you know, the organized crime loses all their profits from selling heroin because uh, how can you make a profit if the government's giving it away for free? <laughs> well, of course, of course. And and this just makes sense, you know, if we if we look at our population and we look at people as unique beings, you know, there is a reasonable expectation to say that none of us are perfect, nor will we be perfect, and we have different 
desires, needs. Uh, some some folks who have issues, you know, with serious use also have co-occurring mental health issues. And in this regard, at least they would be in a system where they can access care. It's certainly better than living on the streets. It's certainly better than having nowhere to go. It's certainly better than having people panicked because there's no order and there's no protocol for actually managing everyone appropriately. So, you know, to me it just it just makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we talk often about uh, bringing communities together. So we can't have this order and, and this vision unless all the agencies, all the, the people that have any kind of touch, you know, with someone – who is growing up, who may use substances, you know, we, we have to really develop a seamless kind of integrated plan where uh, we have protocol for certain things. And, you know, right now it's chaos. It's it's Wild West City. You know, the, the criminal justice system operates in a way that uh, even though they call uh, – a substance user, abuser, an addict, and and uh, talk about a disease, you know, they take these young individuals and they sanction them if they have a positive drug screen. And, you know, that is, is such a, a disaster, you know, for our young children because they are already fearful and they're already in a place where they've been broken down and then they're given kind of like a, a hamster wheel and they're told, okay, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. these are the tasks. You need to show up for three appointments. Then you have to go somewhere else. Then, I mean, so the, they're unable to keep jobs. They're unable to stay focused. You know, I, I've seen young children in the courtrooms, you know, with their, with their khakis and their buttoned-up blue shirts being reprimanded, you know, by – probation officers by judges because, you know, they are not working, you know, their program. And it's Mm -hmm. not about working a program. It's about working a life plan that is going to be unique for you. And, And that is only found through relationships, you know, with family, relationships with physicians, relationships with therapists, which are not even in the picture in traditional treatment mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. nobody gets to stay in one place for very long. They just keep going, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. through this revolving door. So, mm-hmm. well, drug courts are just an outrage. Um, I mean, first we've seen the drug courts try to take people's medications away. They say you can't be on methadone, and then they order them to join a religion called mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it's what if we had diabetes courts? which told you, uh, you you're not allowed to have any insulin and you have to go to Catholic Church every Sunday or we'll put you in jail. <laughs> it would be the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, and while drug court, you know, the packaging of it sounds nice, but what really takes place is, you know, there are a lot of sanctions that could be anywhere from missing an appointment to having a positive screen and jail is used to actually move, you know, the individuals through the process and towards graduation, you know, and and it's just for for those people that make it through the program, 
what you referenced before, Ken, as far as maturing out, they, they probably could have come to you know their own decisions in in some other way, like on basic social cues from the universe. You know, they just would have figured it out. And for the other people who actually wind up serving time in state prison as a consequence of drug court, it's a disaster. You know, it's it's just a complete mm-hmm, mm-hmm. disaster. And I think you know on the on the bright side. We have an opportunity now, you know, we have an upcoming event in New York, and one of the guest speakers, you know, will be Neil Franklin from LEAP, and we're very encouraged, you know, that many, many uh, people, stakeholders in, in law enforcement are actually coming forward and also saying, you know, this is not a system that we want to participate in. You know, we see what it's doing, and we, too, want to see, you know, drug reform, and and it's, I think that we're really in a very good space right now in terms of garnering support and unity from many people, you know, outside the harm reduction community. Harm reduction is becoming a conversation. Mm-hmm. I saw a great presentation about drug courts at the Open Society Foundation about six months ago, and they were talking about how the drug courts really cherry-pick who they want to have in drug court. They like the uh, white, middle-class young person who used marijuana about once a week, who's totally not dependent and not even Mm -hmm. abusing. They like recreational users. And they, they will pick those, they will fill the drug court with those and, you know, tell them to abstain, which, of course, it's easy to abstain if your recreational user uses once a week. And then they will report very high success rates for drug court, whereas if the person is black from the inner city ghetto, heroin user, they put him in prison. They don't put him in drug court because mm-hmm. that would mess up their success rates. Right. Right, and and so we see, you know, a lot of unrest in the communities, and and rightly so, because what's taking place is a travesty, and you know we really can do things differently. And I, I read a great article today, you know, now that white users are succumbing to drug use, it's a public health problem, and you know, I, it, it makes me feel sad to read that, but as I pour through the dialogue, you know, it really does what what you're referencing right now. You know, this is history. This is what has been, you know, typically business as usual in in the United States. And it's not a complimentary reflection on us. And, you know, we are known as the incarceration nation, you know, and, and I personally, you know, think that that is a travesty for a progressive nation, you know, to keep its its citizens in cages for nonviolent drug offenses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and very often it's just recreational drug use. You know, people don't have drug problems. It's, you know, I I was like to smoke a little marijuana. I was uh, the wrong color, and uh, boom, I'm in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had this stop and frisk uh, in New York City forever, and they're trying to get rid of it. I think they made some progress. But you know they would uh, stop. They would go to the black neighborhoods, stop the black kids. They turn out your pockets, and then if they had marijuana, they would uh, arrest them not for possession but for public display, which carries the sentence. Not the it's not the misdemeanor fine. 
and boom, it started them off in prison, and you know that ruins your entire life. If yes. you go to prison, if you go to prison for a drug offense, you can't get a student loan. You can't go to college. Bill Clinton is responsible for that, mm-hmm. um, and it's ridiculous. Why would you want to prevent someone from going to school for a drug offense? Right. Well, we're seeing, and and what you are expressing right now it really it is it is alarming because if we step back and we take a look and we read the papers we see that young children young school age children are being responded to you know with criminal um intent you know for for doing things in school like not getting along with another kid or or something you know not i mean the the idea of uh bringing, you know, this kind of uh, focus onto small children is very, very traumatic. And all of this is trauma. So the idea of creating more trauma for our, our children, you know, that just gives them very, very little window if they can make something out of themselves and and, and mandating them to these programs as they go to intensive outpatient program or halfway houses, you know, it is also um, a lot of these places are privatized and they are really not scenarios where even someone who's never used a substance would wind up, you know, losing their mind because they're, they're overcrowded, they're, they're uh, drug ridden, they're not a, a place where people can get better. And yet if they don't get better there, they go right back to jail again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Maya Zalovitz wrote an article uh, a couple of years back about how teenage drug rehabs teach teenagers how to use more drugs, harder drugs, different drugs. You get exposed to this. You know, maybe you smoked a little marijuana. Now you would go to yes. rehab. You learn how to do cocaine and heroin. Yes, yes. And and I'll tell you, one of the most alarming things um, that I recognized in a lot of these uh, big gr- group programs is that there were, you know, rehearsed speeches that were so polished and 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 so well performed and the kids would be, you know, one would be leaning on the chair, another would have a hoodie over the head, another was texting under the table and uh I looked and I you know, I thought to myself, nobody's engaged and they just keep talking. And it was just a uh, an exercise in in insanity, and everyone, regardless of how far advanced they were in their drug use, were all told to go unsupervised to meetings, 90 and 90, and the parents were told to work their own program. And I, I questioned it back then. I said, how how can you tell these young adults who are already, you know, have compromised thought process to go out unsupervised and go find meetings. I mean, if you're talking about people, places, and things, who is supervising this process? You know, and Mm -hmm, what would mm -hmm. happen is they'd go to parking lots and exactly what you said, you know, they they would meet up with people that were, uh, had more issues and that, you know, possibly had uh, criminal issues and taught them, you know, all kinds of behaviors that they never would have learned if they just stayed within their own circle of friends in their own community and God help if they needed it, 
or just, you know, were permitted to go through the actualization process and the rites of passage, like all children should be able to do. Mm -hmm. Do you know Monica Richardson? I do. I do know Monica. She has quite a showing for her film across the world right now. I understand it was just accepted now in, in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she talks a lot about, I mean, these meetings aren't safe places, and I definitely would never send a teenager to a 12-step meeting. There's so many sexual predators there. And, I mean, not only do people, sexual predators, know it's a good place to go to prey on people, but judges sentence uh, sex offenders to go to 12-step meetings instead of prison, which is just crazy because they're full of sheep to be preyed on. It's like sentencing the wolf to go into the sheep pen. Yeah, well, I, it just is, that's a perfect example. In, in my view, you know, again, working with physicians, uh, something like that to me sounds like malpractice. I mean, I do not know, you know, how any clinician can responsibly send any of their clients, patients to a place that's kind of in a black hole somewhere where you don't understand what the variables are or who's around. I mean, how can you, you know, put your name on a treatment plan when the treatment plan has no definitive aspects to it? It's just whatever whatever happens is going to happen. I mean, that is not that's not science and that's not compassion mm -hmm. and it it should not be allowed, you know, to continue. It really really shouldn't. It's a for, for adolescents to be put through this process is just uh, what all the families that have followed along in, the, in this process, and most of us began there, we've come to realize that it's where the, where the proof, where the experience, you know, the, the hardships and the experiences of these families who thought that, they were doing the right thing by not letting their children hit bottom or letting them hit bottom, as it were, or arresting them or using interventionists or sending them to wilderness camps or, or you know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and it's it's been millions and millions of dollars. And what other industry has no requirement to operate with any kind of regulations or any kind of uh, standard in terms of efficacy or, you know, results-driven process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, well, it, one, of the things, yeah, one of the things that was really shocking to me, because I went through the new school, I did the uh, mental health and chemical dependency concentration, uh, you know, with Jennifer Pelly. Well, she wasn't there at the time. Uh, she came later, but uh, I went through that concentration. I know Jennifer well now, um, and you know, so uh, it, it, the new school is great. They tell you, yes. they teach you all this stuff. They're completely, you know, in touch with the current research. Absolutely, and you know, when you said Jennifer's name, I, I smiled, and she's just wonderful. And it's really a great honor, you know, to be joining. Dr. Tatarski and Jennifer at, at this event at the new school and welcoming so many people because I think that's well first I'm from New York so I'm I'm also partial to New York as being an epicenter you know for uh 
sending messages around the world, and that really is our our fervent desire to embrace you know harm reduction, embrace drug policy reform, and to be joined by you know the the advocates that are growing in leaps and bounds you know from every sector to say you know we are the people and we're not willing to do this any longer this way mm-hmm. and and do you, have the, you know, do you have the date for this event yes i do it's the date is the 24th of september and it's called bringing communities together and we have a, a Facebook page if anybody would like m- more details about it. Yeah, I have to add it on my calendar. Okay, I'll be happy to send it to you. And for anybody that you know may want to come, we'd love to see you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so as I was saying, I mean, we learned all the science and research uh, there, but... Uh, you know, it also it's a it's a dual program, so you get your master's degree, and you also can take the licensing exam, um, which is uh, you know it's uh, administered by this national corporation, and I got the the uh, study guide for the licensing exam, and you know to be a licensed chemical dependency counselor. Guess what? Everything that you have to learn for the licensing exam is wrong. It's erroneous. It's been debunked by the research. Um, you have to learn this model of the of the drug dependent family, where there's a mascot and an enabler and everybody. And you know, there's no research to verify any of this. Somebody just made all this stuff up. Mm-hmm. They, you know, I, they said the, that a standard drink is 0.5 ounces of ethanol. It was actually changed to 0.6 ounces of ethanol over 20 years ago. Uh, for the stand, but the, you know the book is so out of date and everything. And they say you know everyone with an addiction will die unless they get treatment. And everything in the book is wrong, and you have to memorize everything wrong to pass your licensing exam. So I always say you know if you have a, an addiction problem, you're better off getting advice from a plumber than an addiction counselor because at least he hasn't learned things that are wrong. Well, I, I, can, can you you know again you really hit the nail on the head and and the whole idea of families being told to work their own program and I'll never forget when when I went in desperation you know to a meeting and and everyone spoke and one person's daughter was imprisoned another person lost their child another person didn't know where their child was and I thought to myself this is crazy how could a therapist tell anyone who who is under their care that is part of a therapeutic process in a treatment plan they should go and get support from lay people whose children were not doing very well and i said this is you know this is mind boggling you know to me it, it really was uh so pathetically insulting you know and to see families treated with with such disregard to their their character to what else define them as a, as a family you know it it just is not evidence based treatment there's a lot of propaganda that 
fuels all of this. And, you know, there's a lot of incentive financially, obviously, to, to keep the status quo. Um, you know, I heard a case recently in Pennsylvania. I don't know if you caught this, but uh, there were actually two judges who sat on a bench, and now there was a $4.5 million settlement because of a encounter that was called Cash for Kids, and about 2,000 young people went through a system to a juvenile detention center, uh, and it was arranged to be that way. And, you know, when you read something like this and you think about, you know, well, this is something that went on for five years and, you know, hidden in plain sight, and it took an alarmed parent to ring the bell and say something is wrong, Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know I, i'm sure that this is this is you know a very tragic uh but avoidable event I mean, where is the scrutiny where is the oversight you know i think that it's it's very important that we establish some checks and balances you know albeit in the courtrooms and in the prisons um on the streets uh, and and start holding accountable those responsible to manage our young people and make sure that they're doing what's expected in the name of of health and uh enlightenment and unfortunately uh you know we're we're dealing with a lot of different crises because of our systems which are filled with a lot of great people who are wanting to step into some different shoes and have a system that will actually support them being great therapists or them being, you know, great physicians uh, or great law enforcement. And you know, the, the standard as it is now really needs a complete overhaul uh, because it does reflect a lot of uh, broken, antiquated philosophies as well um, procedures that have no kind of regulation or standard to adhere to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or when they do have standards, the standards are wrong, as I was just saying. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the, the licensing agency makes you memorize all this crap that's been debunked by the science. So, I mean, the chemical dependency counselors have the most mistaken ideas about addiction of anyone in the United States. Hmm. Um which is very problematic. You have to learn things that are wrong to get your license. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, you can't license plumbers this way or every uh, boiler would blow up. In the, you, know, you actually have to do, you actually have to, plumbers actually have to learn science. You know, they have to learn science-based things. Not so with uh, chemical dependency counselors. They have to learn mythology. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there's a lot going on, you know, at some of the, the big box rehabs as well, uh, you know, with the pretty palm trees and the blue water. And what they, they don't tell families during the admission process is that, you know, their their loved one is likely to maybe the second week leave against medical advice and find a, a doctor who may over-prescribe, you know, many, many, many oxycodone that they don't need, but they, they're not really worried about it because they'll be back to detox again. And, of course, you know, that all 
feeds the machine and and none of this is disclosed to families you know which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me you know to me the the lie of omission is also a lie you know when a family member takes 20 or 30 or 40 or 50,000 dollars to send their child to a treatment facility they are led to believe that in 28 days your child will be better this is what it feels like to a new family first you know starting out on this journey and what they don't say is you know look the the efficacy is probably you know 2 2 or 3% and you know you just spent $5000 on an interventionist and now you're going to spend this here and guess what you're going to you're going to do it many times over and you know that's really the truth mhm mhm the other thing is the evidence-based treatments that actually work, that have a proven track record uh, in the scientific journals, they're very cheap. Uh, methadone is cheap. Heroin maintenance is cheap. Uh, therapeutic communities, although there have been a lot of bad ones in history, if there are good therapeutic communities, and there are a few good ones, mm-hmm. uh, they're very inexpensive. Um, they've done the studies in Italy where they think the therapeutic communities tend to be much better than the U.S., and they found, you know, uh, really great reductions in overdose death, you know, from the people <laughs> that go to therapeutic communities yes. because they have they have enough time. I mean, if you can stay there for, you know, indefinitely at a reasonable price and you stay there two or three years, you're far enough removed from your heroin habit that you, you know, you lose interest. Well, so therapeutic Communities can be good, although a lot of ones in the U.S. have been bad and abusive. Yes, yes, and I'm I'm actually smiling as you say that because um, my father, who's 89 years young now, actually started one of the first therapeutic communities here in New Jersey, and you know he really questions what is going on in addiction treatment, and and he's observed and sat in on some of the meetings and and challenged the facilitators and you know, said. How can you continue to run a meeting when no one's listening to you? How is that helping people? He, he's infuriated, you know, by all of this. So, uh, and he talks also, you know, back in in the day, uh, peer on peer, and how how in the therapeutic community, you know, it worked because there was a system and there was a hierarchy, and you know, then uh, when it it went kind of sideways, you know, with uh, Synanon and and all of that, but. As you say, before that, there there were some good models, and and it wasn't expensive. You know, there is no reason that a family should spend that kind of money on frivolous kind of care, and and it's not it's not helpful. Yeah, to play with horses. Yeah, yeah. Equine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> therapy. Come on, you know, if you had diabetes <laughs> or. If you had cancer, would you want equine therapy? Learn to ride a horse. It cures your cancer. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, well, I want to ask you about something else. You mentioned Robert Myers. Um, tell us a little bit about craft, community reinforcement, and family training, and where are you with craft? Well, we're, we're very excited to be working with Robert Myers, we have many, many families in our community who are really crying out for something different, and he is uh, probably, you know, the, the leading expert on 
this kind of intervention with families and we're really really excited to be bringing him on because what the families have been exposed to really has not been very effective at all in terms of educating them that you know it's been fear-based and there's been a lot of propaganda and they've been taught you know that that any kind of notion as far as drug use is a reason to panic so that you know children have not been forthcoming in actually saying what's so mm-hmm. so we really are very very excited to be introducing to them you know an opportunity for a, a positive approach and uh, you know a non-confrontational approach which you know is really the spirit of uh what his program speaks to and it it's also you know a very empowering kind of a um forum for the the whole family mhm and uh, well I want to mention craft has been tested scientifically um and it has a very high success rate uh, much better than the traditional interventions. Well, absolutely. I mean, the traditional uh, interventions do not work, and the the interventions are more smoke and mirror uh, kind of, you know, mumbo jumbo that are are just uh, all over the place and very scattered. They really do not give the families any kind of tools to actually have staying power. Mm-hmm. Now we know craft is based on motivational interviewing rather than the confrontation and intervention is just confrontation. Um, so what is it like to do craft? Well, I have not personally experienced the craft process with my own family. You know, this is something that we are looking forward to uh, having Bob, bring to us. So I can't speak firsthand on that, but from what I've heard from colleagues and friends and family in the community is that it's just fantastic. I mean, uh, there's just so many tools that are friendly to the family and, you know, there can be um, different ways that the tools can be accessed, you know, through tapes, through uh you know online services so it's it's all right there and and it's not um a shaming kind of uh negative experience it's a very positive experience mhm mhm well we're coming close to the end of the show i'm going to ask you well, do you have any events or things going on besides the new school thing that you'd like to tell, tell us about uh, well, we're looking forward to the Drug Reform Conference with CPA in Washington uh, in, in November. Mm-hmm. So that's also very exciting for us. And uh, we have different projects that we're working on, uh, overdose protection, and we're working on uh, developing our website, which will be accessible soon, and you know many, many different focuses and partnerships that uh, we're developing and very, very privileged to be a part of this community that uh, is standing for change. And where can people find you? Can they find you on Facebook? 
They can find us on Facebook. We have a very lively and robust Facebook page. Um, we're about six months old, and we have uh, really brilliant people, families, filmmakers, harm reduction specialists, uh, just fantastic people that are are coming together sharing ideas and it's really it's more than a, a facebook page it's really like a think tank we have you know so many wonderful people sharing thoughts strategies and we're able to connect uh the people that come on you know with with other people in their community that might be of help to them so it's it's a great way you know to use social media to bring us all together and to move forward uh as as a collective unit rather than you know having different strategies we can really kind of hone in on on what we need to do you know in our messaging to create a very powerful statement you know when we do come together at these events and we do go before you know the different uh people that will give us an opportunity to uh express you know why we would desire that there be a change and you know I feel very fortunate and again you know Ken especially I, I really thank you for the opportunity to speak you know, candidly and share this evening with you because it's important that our family's voice be represented. And it's it's very important that uh, the world knows that our experiences have been um, a catalyst for change, you know, for us, that we've all grown and experienced and, and perceived, you know, the different touches that um, are considered, you know, normal uh and, and they are so far from from compassionate or scientific so i thank you very much you know for uh giving me this forum to speak on that well i'd like to thank you for being our guest and i think we can close on that note but so we'll see you all next week everyone thank you so much it was a pleasure sharing this time with you okay good night everyone good night Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.